it's another Friday night at the Joiner Report, and thanks for listening. We are at WPRN 105.7 FM and UFOParanormalRadioNetwork.com. I hope you can join us in the PalTalk Virtual Auditorium. If you don't have PalTalk, it is a free download. You can go to my website, www.angeliajoiner.com. Click on the Texas flag at the top, and it will take you to the instructions on how to download PalTalk and how to find us in the chat room. Um, thank you for listening. It's always so great to see so many people in the PalTalk chat room. I see a lot of regulars there that come and listen every Friday night, and I appreciate you so much. Um, tonight, we're, we're Larry Lowe on, on with us. Uh, I know some of you know him. He's He's been on with us before. Uh, he's a dedicated researcher. He's accumulated three decades of research and investigation into the UFO phenomenon. From the mid-80s to the late 90s, he was a member of MUFON LA in Los Angeles. And during the period, he served on the board of directors of MUFON LA with Ann Druffel. Druffel was a contemporary of James McDonald, and after his death went through his personal papers and unpublished reports before they were given to the University of Arizona. The result was Firestorm, an exceptional biography of the man and an invaluable account of the times. On this week's The Joiner Report, Phoenix UFO examiner Larry Lowe will discuss his assessment of the contribution of the U University of Arizona professor to the history of ufology as recounted in Druffel's book. According to Lowe, Dr. James E. McDonald was arguably the most accredited, most engaged scientist ever to confront the evidence for UFO reality. He attacked the enigma with the tools that made him a force to be reckoned with in atmospheric physics and national defense policy. A voracious memory for detail, a relentless and dispassionate inquiry into the data, or razor-sharp analytical capability. He produced a mass of notes and reports, a huge volume of audio uh, material. The majority remained unpublished, incorporating his occasionally whimsical means of explanation. He once explained that a raindrop in free fall assumed the shape of a hamburger bun. Had he been allowed to complete his career, he may have been become the Carl Sagan of disclosure. Shortly before his death, reportedly from a self-inflicted gunshot wound, McDonald told a few trusted colleagues that he had the smoking gun in his possession that would resolve the UFO issue. For over three decades, that statement has reverberated like the echo of a gunshot in a desert canyon, tantalizing in its implications and enigmatic in its solitary finality. Guys, we're in for a real treat tonight. And welcome once again to the Joiner Report, Larry. Angela, thank you very much. It's always a delight, and I'm pleased to be here. Well, I always enjoy talking to you, and I always learn something talking to you. And uh, I 
didn't know too much about James McDonald. Um, he's someone uh, that uh, passed away when I was just a kid, and I hadn't done that much reading about him, but I, I have found uh, this information from you very interesting. I, I enjoy learning the history of ufology, and hopefully uh, we'll uh, share some things that people might not have known before tonight. Well, well, thank you, Angela. I was fortunate, as I said, uh, as it was stated in the intro, to uh, be on the board of directors of MUFON LA with Ann Druffel, and I took note of her demeanor, her cautious, meticulous, carefully crafted manner of speaking, the way she always is very, very detailed and very quiet and very precise, and it was a Impressive even then, and this is uh, now we're talking 20 years ago, I guess. Uh, her book, Firestorm, uh, Dr. James E. McDonald's Fight for UFO Science, I recognized that she had thrown everything she had in her career into this one work, and it stood as a singular beacon uh, to try to keep, if I can maintain an analogy here, keep the flame alive. And it's been my concern that somehow, some way, memory of James McDonald has sort of slipped from our grasp. Well, he was well known for the time, I think, and things have changed a lot today. Uh, it's, it's a very different world than it was in the 50s, 60s, 70s. It was. Uh, he began his career, in, in a sense, in 1954, when outside the, the desert in, uh, in Tucson, he and three other atmospheric physicists who happened to be writing with him observed um, a shiny aluminum spherical object hovering motionless near some mountains, which took off at some speed, about which nobody in the vehicle could explain. And that single sighting prompted his curiosity. Uh, but to understand him a little bit, I think we need to look back at a different incident uh, when he came to Tucson as an atmospheric physicist. Um, there was a movement at the time in the United States Air Force to um, interceptor missiles silos around Tucson. As you know, davis Monthan Air Force Base is down there along with some other assets. And uh, somebody in the idea if we would protect our assets with some response. And James McDonald said, that's not the best idea you've ever had because it makes those silos a target. And if one of them goes off by accident or if something comes through and hits them, Tucson is directly down of the worst fallout that could be had given the prevailing wind patterns. And he successfully argued the United States Air Force back into a different point of view, and a lot of those silos ended up in North Dakota. So from the very onset of his tenure as an atmospheric physicist, he was not afraid to speak his mind and speak what truth he felt was obvious uh, and true. And if, and if you just spoke the truth, uh, somehow, some way, everything would take care of itself after that. Do you think that's the way it is? Well, I talked to a couple of people uh, in, in preparing my remarks tonight. 
uh, one of them was Bob Wood, who's mentioned uh, in, in Anne's book, and the other one is Stanton Friedman, who was uh, a contemporary of McDonald. Both of these men have got academic credentials. Both of these men work deeply. And Bob Wood said, um, in some ways, McDonald was a little bit naive in his faith that if you simply spoke well and spoke the truth, um, you were you were done. Uh, that's that's all it would take. And, and if your case was sound, people would accept it. And we'll we'll hear from uh, Bob a little bit later in the program on on uh, when it began to dawn on James McDonald that the world was didn't play by the kinds of moral rules that he felt were appropriate. Well, that's a shame. Um, it does seem like you should be able to tell the truth and everything uh, takes care of itself, but I don't believe it always turns out that way. Well, it didn't for James McDonald, and we're not sure to this day. There's, I mean, there's a number of mysteries uh, revolving around his, his demise, and I will try to go into those in some detail a little bit later on. Um, but he tried his best, and he left behind him a, a, a legacy of plain speaking, of being very, very thoughtful and very, very careful about exactly what he said, how he said it. He documented everything. He had a notebook that he carried with him all the time, and he would often either whip it out and make notes about what somebody said or whip it out and quote somebody verbatim because he was really trying to get as truthful and as accurate as he could on the issue. Let me, let's just hear briefly from Stanton Friedman uh, to, to kick off our audio, and uh, we'll see if our levels are right. I'm going to ask the audience to bear with us. Uh, the audio levels may vary a bit from quote to quote, but this is Stanton Friedman's uh, take on uh, James McDonald. There's a strange contrast between... There definitely was a contrast between him and Alan, and... Uh, Jim was, as far as I'm concerned, the finest ufologist ever. He, well, a little side story. Uh, I gave a talk to a nuclear society group in uh, the Vegas area. There was nuclear rocket testing out there and stuff. So there's an active American Nuclear Society chapter. And afterward, people talked to me and stuff. And a woman tells me that she was in Socorro, New Mexico, a grad student, when the uh, Monte Zamora case happened in Socorro in 1964. And she was asked by her department head to analyze some soil samples from the crash site, from the uh, landing site. And she did that. She was not allowed to keep copies of the results and so forth. Had to be kept quiet and stuff. Well, she was living out there, so I contacted Jim and said, you know, maybe you could follow up on this. You're out there. I'm here a long ways away. And uh, he did. He contacted her, and her story appears someplace. I can't tell you where, but in one of those papers or something like that. Uh, but he was, he followed up on stuff. He went after it. He was uh, logical and decent and uh uh, somebody to be admired, and 
certainly those of us in the group in Pittsburgh, and I'm sure other groups around the country, were really saddened by his loss. There was a strange contrast between. So that's the the word, the finest ufologist ever. Um, And McDonald was a scientist first and foremost, and he needed to be convinced of the fact that there was something there. And he, he, he worked with APRO down in Tucson and began to study more and more reports and systematically applied his analytical mind to the whole thing. And it took a time, it took a time, but he finally came to a conclusion. And in a sense, James McDonald represents the purity of the scientific method. Um, and I'm going to play a very rare quote here from Jim McDonald himself explaining uh, his conclusions to the data that he was presented. Question arises, what are these UFOs, the ones that pass the test of not being put aside as fireballs and planets? So what, what, what could they be? And that, of course, is the ultimately important question. Not easy to offer an answer. One can only consider hypotheses, guesses, big ifs in front of all of them. When you look at these various hypotheses, psychological, uh, advanced technology, hoax, fabrication, fraud, poorly understood geophysical phenomena, you run through all of those. This is certainly what I've done in the past uh, year of checking. You find yourself ending up with the seemingly absurd, seemingly improbable hypothesis that these things may be coming from somewhere else. And when he came to that conclusion, there was no stopping him. Um, he just was relentless. So let me talk a little bit here. Uh, listen to Stanton Friedman. There was a, a, a specific phrase that that uh, McDonald arrived at that we will hear at the very end of this clip talking about uh, his papers and his contribution to the uh, Pittsburgh UFO area. Jim's paper, which I have been distributing for many years, uh, is the best single paper that I know of containing only good cases. He's got 41 separate cases. It's a 71-page paper, and it really is outstanding. He investigated all these. Now, he he was a bear. I mean, he, uh, the RB47 case, he talked to all of the crew members, all half dozen of them, I guess. He also published papers. He, He was the AIAA, American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, uh, lecturer one year, which meant the national office uh, provided him to various sections of the AIAA, biggest uh, space scientist group in the world, no matter what it still is, I don't know. So he had guts enough to speak out, and he published articles about UFO sightings in uh, Aeronautics and Astronautics, the journal of the AIAA. So these had a far-reaching effect in that they made a lot of people and technical people, not so strong on academics, but industry, government to some extent too, uh, got a lot of people uh, aware. And he spoke out. He didn't, he too was not an apologist ufologist. Now, he didn't come on as strong as I did, but I was a lot younger. 
the least unlikely solution for the UFO problem is extraterrestrial, I guess is the way he put it. <laughs> yes. I, that was his catchphrase. For Jim McDonald, the excuses or the issues, the, the explanations that were put forward for the very, very sound cases were more unlikely than the possibility that somebody from not around here was visiting the planet. Well, that's a strong compliment coming uh, from Stanton that uh, it was the best 41 cases put together uh, at that time. Um, and I guess he's meaning uh, since that time, too, but Stanton's very complimentary of McDonald. Um Stanton uh, knew him personally, right? Just, I mean, like a, on a ufologist basis, but they had known each other a number of years. Uh, correct. Stanton was just getting started in the middle 60s in Pittsburgh. Uh, NICAP was uh, active at that point in time, uh, which was uh, not originally founded, but it was run by uh, Don Kehoe. Uh, Jim McDonald never joined uh, NICAP. He never, I don't think he joined any organization. He preferred, uh, like Charles Lindbergh before him, never really to join anything but to contribute what he could as he could. And Stanton talks about him coming by and uh, uh, talking to the, to the folks there at, uh, in Pittsburgh and being a, kind of a mentor to them. Uh, and inspiring them, and he he inspired everybody. I think the the thing that I'm finding is you need to go back a ways, and you need to talk to some of these folks like a Stanton Friedman or a Bob Wood or an Andruffel or an Isabel uh, to kind of get the word out. Jacques Vallée would know because uh, he was in the room. Uh, Jim McDonald took Alan Hynek to task uh, over Blue Book. Oh, really? And if you were really to take, oh, yeah, it was a classic moment. Uh, and I, I sent a message to Jacques to see if he would appear, and I had, didn't get a reply. I may not have put it in early. But uh, if you look at what McDonald did in the times that he did them, he stands almost if you were going to write an allegory that Jim McDonald stood for pure, innocent, responsible, relentless, analytical, logical science with no prejudice one way or the other. And he did not understand politics. He didn't understand academics. He didn't understand human nature at, at some level. Um, and Heineck did. Heineck understood that uh, you operated in an academic environment at the good graces of the other people that, uh, around you. And uh, sometimes uh, not rocking the boat is a is a good thing from the point of view of uh, you know expanding one's career. The relationship between McDonald and J. Allen Hynek and Blue Book, and the relationship between Jim McDonald and the Condon Commission, would make a stunning movie, and it would tell everybody. I think a lot about how we got where we are today. One of the things that a lot of people don't recognize, we talk about, it would be great to get congressional hearings on the UFO subject. Uh, 
Jim McDonald instigated congressional hearings and testified. And it's a matter of public record that this is uh, the subject is something that's important. Let's once again let's listen to Stanton and talk a little bit about uh, as he talks a little bit about um, McDonald's early influence in Pittsburgh and uh, his involvement in the congressional hearings. Okay. He would stop by in town. We'd talk to him. Uh, we had other interactions. He was the one who. Oh, stimulated, I guess, the congressional hearings on UFOs, instigated might be better, uh, on July 29, 1968. How did he do that? Well, he knew people around Washington through NICAP and uh, Dick Hall and others, and he found a friendly congressman, guy from Indiana, as a matter of fact, um, who was on the aeronautics uh, committee, and uh, they held hearings. Uh, one day, six scientists testified in person, and six more of us testified in writing. I was one of the latter group of six. And uh, those hearings were published, and I used them as one of my five major scientific studies. There's a lot of good data in there. Uh, Carl Sagan was one of the contributors, uh, Alan Hynek, uh, James Harder from uh, Berkeley, um, Guy Henderson from uh, General Dynamics in Fort Worth. Um, well, yeah, these were good people, and they allowed in some of the debunkers like Menzel. He, w he contributed uh, in writing, as I did. And actually, John uh, Fuller, who did uh, the Interrupted Journey about Betty and Barney Hill, also had a book in which he went over the hearings. He left out the references, unfortunately. He included the texts. So, and it got some attention. And then the congressman was gerrymandered out of his district. <laughs> and I, it got some attention, but it, it never got followed up on. And one of the mysteries or one of the issues that I guess we want to try and figure out at this late date, when you have congressional testimony at that level by those kinds of quality scientists without with that quality of work, how come there wasn't any more made of it? How come it didn't go anywhere? I was wondering that too. Um, what, uh, what was the response? I mean, did the media cover it heavily or was it like, oh, they had it and it's over? <laughs> I don't know exactly what the media response was. Um, but this was in the same time frame as the uh, Condon report. Um, and I guess I need to back up and run through something that I, is kind of a litany for me. <clears throat> but there's a couple of key events in, in American information policy that have dictated how Americans perceive of the UFO issue and why most of them think the way they do. And the first one was the Robertson panel in 1953, uh, just as Eisenhower was taking office uh, at the end of, um, I think, Harry Truman's watch. Uh, the Robertson Commission was put together by the CIA. Uh, they invited a bunch of people to come and testify. And they came and they testified. And then the Robertson Commission came to the conclusion they intended to come to all along. And that conclusion was 
that. Somehow, some way, we all know that there's no credible threat from unidentified flying objects. Which doesn't make any sense because if you don't, if it's unidentified, how do you know whether or not it's a threat? But what is a threat? Specifically, a threat to the orderly function of the body politic is UFO reports. And so they strove to discredit UFO reports. And they did so in two two manners. One was to stress to the regular conventional media that you will downplay reports, you won't report them, you will tend to ridicule them. And the other thing they did was funnel some money for the creation of the National Enquirer and put UFO reports in along with totally outrageous and ridiculous stories and put them in the checkout stands of every supermarket in America so that the UFO issue became something ridiculous. And it was in this light where the whole the whole issue is ridiculous to academia, it's ridiculous to uh, those in the man, general management of the government who are not aware of anything, it's ridiculous to the common citizen, uh, and it was something that um, everybody uh, had to put up with. Uh, in fact, I think I've got a little piece here. If I can go ahead and find it, I'll try to. Okay. Uh, he talks about McDonald. McDonald talks about the ridicule that he was faced, that he had to face. Well, he was one of the few writing papers and 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 publishing about it, right? He he was a prolific publisher. Not too much uh, were doing this. Well, and certainly nobody uh, of his scientific stature. And we're going to come to a point later in the program. I'm going. I think I've got a, a, a case made that uh, he was the greatest threat to the continued secrecy and denial of the UFO reality ever to emerge from academic science. Uh, and we'll see what some of my uh, my guests have to say about that. But I'm about to play a piece of video that no one's going to see because this is radio uh, in the uh, that I got off of YouTube and. Uh, great thing this internet I gotta tell you and the first voice you're going to hear is Bob Fowler who's talking about uh, McDonald and then later on you're going to hear McDonald's voice himself talk about the ridicule that he was faced with when uh, the uh, the Robertson panel had done its magic so here comes some audio The price one pays for investigating UFOs can sometimes be more than 22 years of time spent searching and not finding. There are those who believe that pursuing the UFO question may have cost physicist Dr. James McDonald his career, and perhaps more. Dr. James McDonald was a good example of what ridicule can do to uh, people who are involved with UFO research, especially if they have credentials devoted a good part of his life to investigating uh, UFO reports, sightings, writing them up, speaking at scientific and non-scientific uh, groups all over the country and, and different parts of the world. Another thing that's common all over the world is the scoffing and ridicule from official sources, from my fellow scientists, largely, well, almost entirely. He was respected by uh, UFO researchers, but his peers sort of looked askance 
at what he was doing when he was a uh, a witness of giving testimony at congressional hearings on uh, what the SST, the supersonic transport, might do to the ozone layer. One of the congressmen uh, brought up the fact that he was interested in UFOs and researching UFOs and sort of made a fool out of this uh, very brilliant man. No one can say with certainty what it was that finally broke James McDonald's spirit. But the ridicule he endured for taking UFOs seriously cannot have helped him in his struggle with his own personal demons. Early morning of June 13, 1971, Dr. James McDonald walked into the Arizona desert. An hour before dawn, he put a gun to his head and ended his life. Dr. James McDonald, a ghostly presence who stands at the door to the UFO mystery, greeting us with this reminder. Beware all those who enter here. Well, I can't speak for exactly where that particular video came from because it wasn't attributed in, in, on the YouTube. But I certainly can say that the ridicule factor was huge. Uh, and it, it, got, it got very complicated because... Uh, when Alan Hynek went to Michigan and started talking about marsh gas, the whole thing that the government was trying to put forward as to what the excuses were became, became absurd. And this led to McDonald's famous statement that the least unlikely hypothesis was the, the extraterrestrial hypothesis. Nonetheless, he maintained uh, for most of his life a very interesting and, again, somewhat naive perspective. Uh, there were, he, he thought, two possibilities as to why the data presented by the UFO reports was not being properly investigated. Uh, one of them was a foul-up, i.e., the, the system just didn't work right. Um, the layer of ridicule that was heaped on the thing prevented uh, media from taking it seriously. The lack of good news reports on what's going on didn't inform anybody of anything. Science took no interests. The government probably didn't know what the left hand was doing with the right hand. Um, and, and in a certain sense, he had a sort of innocent belief that, well, this was just a mistake. It was a foul-up. It could be rectified if we'd simply everybody do their job and, and take the issue somewhat seriously. The alternative was cover-up, and I think that the people in the UFO community were a little more comfortable with the idea that such information could be covered up, ridiculed, denied, uh, talk, hidden in plain sight, and basically never come to the general attention of the, of the populace of the country. Let's listen to Stanton Friedman on the foul-up versus cover-up issue. Okay. I can't confirm or deny I don't know. Okay. I do know that he did tell Ida Bell Epperson, as you must have heard from Ann, that first he thought it was foul-up. Then he realized not too long before his death that it was cover-up. Uh, he never published that, I don't believe. But uh, I heard it from uh, Ida Bell and Ann both, I think, way back then. I lived in Southern California at that time. 
uh, and they had a very active group going there, and he would. So now we're beginning to get to the real mystery of James McDonald. Um, something happened that changed his mind. For from I don't know the early sixty sixty three I think is about when he became active through say sixty nine he was convinced the whole thing was. Uh, um, could be explained away by incompetence or bureaucracy, uh, that there was no cover-up. But shortly before he died, he, he confided in some people, key among them, Bob Wood, that things had, had changed his point of view. He'd come across some piece of information. And what we'd love to know is what would that information be? Okay. Let's yeah. listen to Bob Wood talk. Let's listen to, well, I mean, let, no, when do you need to go to a station break here? Oh, we've got uh, about 15 minutes. Okay, good. Well, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna set the stage then before we go to the break uh, with the curious fact that James McDonald changed his opinion shortly before his death. And then when we come back, I want to talk about the fact that uh, he was uniquely dangerous at that moment in time. Okay. Sounds Here good. is Bob, Bob, Bob Wood. I, I should preface this a little bit. I didn't put it all together. Bob Wood was on a trip. He had, uh, was working uh, for McDonnell Douglas or the Douglas Aircraft Corporation at the time. They were looking at UFO data, taking it seriously, doing science, and saying, is there anything that we can discern from the UFO reports that might point us in the direction of a propulsion system? Uh, and, and that's a pretty thoughtful point of view for a major aerospace firm to take. You don't hear much about it unless you happen to know Bob Wood. But that's what humanity should be doing, is learning from the data of the observations and not just discounting them. Anyway, he was on his way to a, uh, an event, and he happened to stop in Tucson, and he called up uh, Jim McDonald and said, can you meet me at the airport? And this is his account of what happened. So anyway, we went and uh, we had a beer, and you know, I said, what's, what's new, Jim? And he said, well, he said, you know how we used to think it was either a screw-up or a cover-up? I said, yeah. I said, uh, <clears throat> I noticed, I think, I think you've been leaning more towards this screw up uh, we got some new stuff and he said yeah he says I do uh, and I said well what is it and he said I really can't tell you it's so sensitive and uh, but I, I, at the time I didn't realize what he was trying to tell me but later I concluded that what had happened was in my mind what he had found was he had found some hard evidence and probably uh, uh a military officer who was willing to talk to him and show him some documents that showed that there really was a, an MJ-12 program. And, uh, you know, I don't know whether it was a special operations manual or or some other, one of the other documents that actually I, I have. Since, as you know, my specialty is evaluating question UFO leaked documents. But uh, I, I concluded that he had seen 
a, a document that convinced him that it was absolutely a cover-up and the most sophisticated cover-up uh, ever, way beyond what, it, what most people would have ever imagined that the United States would have been able to do, or any nation be able to do. And, and that's, but he wasn't sure of it. And, and that is what I think he was, uh, that was his situation when I, I left. So I, that, that's my own opinion. It, and it's an opinion developed kind of. Yeah, developed because of Bob. Bob Wood certainly has got considerable ex- experience in attempting to verify the various documents uh, involved. Uh, it's a very interesting conjecture that the documentation to NJ-12 or the existence of something like NJ-12 might have been leaked to McDonald because uh, something changed his mind. And to this day, we don't know exactly what it is. Uh, oh, if only he had told someone. But he might have, you know, he may have known that it was so sensitive that he didn't want to uh, endanger someone else. Well, I think more the point from his persona, as best I can ascertain it, was that he was going to be very, very reluctant to speak about anything until he knew and could document and could prove. And uh, as we all know, people get played in this business all the time. Uh, If you're an up-and-coming young writer, eager beaver, uh, various people will come to you with stories and see what you're going to print, what you're capable of, of, of believing. And if you're not careful, you'll find yourself hot on the trail of a spectacularly wonderful story that five or ten years hence is going to turn out to be totally bogus and your reputation is going to be down the tank. So I think that the whole issue is that McDonald was very, very circumspect because he did not feel he had enough documentation to, to back him up. Let's, let's listen again to, to Bob Wood. That last incident at the airport in Tucson was uh, kind of vivid in my mind as being a, a milestone in, in in his mind because I, I think he he really he seemed to have uh, taken on a totally different point of view. How so? Well, I guess in the sense that instead of being being and wanting to openly discuss every detail of the topic down to its very depth. Here's here's a time where he stopped and said, No, I can't I can't tell you. So that that was subconsciously significant. Uh, how was this different uh, that he didn't how did how did he change in this one conversation? His his point of view about the subject matter or his point of view about what he was willing to to share, because I understand him to be pretty open and direct. I don't think there was any. Well, I don't want to make more or more of it than it was. It's the first time I ever remember is telling me, no, I can't tell you. So he thought he was on to something, and he didn't. He couldn't speak about it. Uh, if we knew what that was, it would be. It would be very compelling. And, and who knows what would have happened had he ever, A, convinced himself that he had enough data to, to back it up, and B, lived long enough to do what he would have normally done, which is he would have talked about it. 
Yeah, I think he would have too, and it might have changed the course of the of ufology as we know it today. I mean, it probably would have. Well, one hopes that it would. Um, I've got a, a comment from Friedman here a little bit about uh, his uh, what the what if question. Yeah, I, it's interesting. I got two different answers on the what it would have been like had James McDonald lived, and one of them from Stanton was kind of what you might expect. Uh, if things would have been different. Let's just hear what he has to say in that line, and then I'll, I'll tell you what Bob Wood told me. Okay. What would what would uh, UFO studies be like today if Jim McDonald was still alive? Could you conjecture? Well, he'd be awful old by now. <laughs> well, if, if he had lived uh, a reasonable lifespan, I'll put it that way. Yeah. Uh I think there would have been a number more academic studies. I think there would have been a number of courses taught at universities. I think the professional groups would have kept being active. Like for his, him to be an AIAA lecturer for a whole year was quite something. For the aeronautics and astronautics to publish articles about UFO sightings uh, would have been would have continued and would have expanded the thing. The whole business of ufology, if you will, kept out some of the kooks, made it more respectable, uh, and more activities in industry and so forth. Uh, I think there would have been a major difference also with the media because Jim could carry, he had the PhD, he had the professorship, he had the, uh, the credentials to carry weight with the media. And he sure knew how to deal with them. He wasn't afraid to the way Heineck was. Um, and so I think there would have been a groundswell over the next three or four years. There have only been about a dozen Ph.D. theses. I think there would have been another, another dozen in that period of time. I think there would have been much more interest on the academic level and in the journalistic level. Uh, and I think the two go together. That is, the more respectable ufology becomes, the more likely you're going to be getting people to look into it. And so I think uh, there would have been more studies on the consequences of flying saucer reality. Uh, none of that happened. None of it did. And that's kind of my thought was, well, if James McDonald would have lived, uh, you know, things would have been a lot different. I asked Bob Wood more or less the same question. And he said, well, you know, the the organizations that want to try and keep this information, the status quo the way it is, they're pretty good. And they would have found a way sooner or later, somehow or another, to discredit him and, and, and diffuse the threat. And you know, I, I detected a certain kind of wistful fatalism in Bob Wood because he knows a little bit about how things work in industry and, and uh, in the, behind the, the, the doors of power. And he was a little bit uh, of the opinion that, well, it might not have been as great as we would have hoped it would have been. 
So we're going to press on here. Um, I think it's important if you look at Jim McDonald's uh, work to put it in context of the times. And he, this was before the abduction syndrome became what it is now known to be. The only abduction that anyone knew anything about was Betty and Barney Hill, which for a long time was the only one that, that was out there. It was before a lot of the crash retrieval work was done. It was before the first book was published on Roswell. And so he was at a point in time where he, uh, uh, if he would have found out about MJ-12 or something like it, it would have been a stunning revelation. It would have shifted everything forward a decade or so. And let's listen to Bob would talk about that possibility, but the time shift. Can we put this in time context to when Shandera received the uh, canister of film through the mail slot? Yeah, I mean, that was 1984. So he's talking about, what, 13 years earlier. A decade, a decade earlier or more. Yeah, or more. What... So that's how far in advance the, the secret, whatever it was, that got him. I mean, maybe somebody said, I've got uh, evidence of a, of a crash. I've got a piece of material. I've got something. That's how far in advance it was. And it was in the hands of possibly the most dangerous uh, uh, person ever to come from academia who would speak out about it if he was uh, provoked. Well, it's certainly puzzling. Um, you I, I understand uh, after he died that there was uh, three notebooks that couldn't be found also. So I, what I would like to see is another medical examiner look over that examiner's note and look at things too. And uh, the, the way that Ann Ruffle treats his uh, death in in the book, Firestormer, which I cannot recommend highly enough to anybody. Um, police queried the taxi driver who stated that he left McDonald off at 4 p.m. in an isolated intersection in the desert. He inquired if he'd be all right, and McDonald replied that someone was picking him up. The taxi drove off, and McDonald apparently walked over a mile to the Canyon del Oro, a steep side of dry wash, which where he was familiar, having explored it six weeks before. There, under a bridge, his body was found midday on Sunday, June 13, 1971, by a family that was hiking in the wash. The circumstances of his death have led to the speculation in the UFO community that perhaps he was not self-induced. Accounts in the Tucson newspapers at the time contained inconsistencies and errors. The most accurate account is included as Appendix Item 18D, page 584, but it too errs in stating that he left the hospital Sunday by taxi. Actually, he left the Institute by taxi on Saturday, as described above. When McDonald's body was found at midday on Sunday, police at the scene estimated he'd been dead 8 to 10 hours. This suggests that he may have been alive quite a few hours after having been let out at the desert intersection. Theoretically, he might have been found in the desert the same day he dis disappeared. If the police had been called immediately and if Tucson's efficient search and rescue team had been notified, and yet that team was never contacted. Instead, 
two friends of the family, a man and a woman, who had been called by the family during the initial search, advised the family that they would find him. The woman, who presented herself only as Dr. Martin, found out where the taxi driver had left him in the desert. She made numerous calls from an isolated house within a mile of Canyon del Oro. Why did two friends insist upon looking for him instead of calling in the experts? This remains unclear, and the two friends remain unidentified. And yes, uh, the other question is, why would a cab driver knowingly take a blind person to a pawn shop to buy a gun? <clears throat> but the biggest mystery is of three personal notebooks. Uh, McDonald kept a large number of notebooks on anything and everything, and they were in his office, and everybody understood that, and they're all down in the archives at Tucson right now. But According to Druffel, three small, handwritten, private notebooks were his his personal, most private material, and I, I guess they never left his possession. And they were never found. And to this day, no one knows where they're at and what they might have contained. And it, it strikes me as strange that you would go to the desert alone if you were blind. Did you say he was blind? He was blinded by an initial attempt at suicide, which didn't exactly work in the way he planned, but it resulted in him being blinded. And he was checked into the institute for a period of time, and he was checked back out, and he wrote a bunch of uh, notes saying, look, I really want to get back to work. And he came back to work and worked pretty furiously for a little while. And then he came um, to a decision later that he needed to do it over again. Something triggered him again to make a second attempt on his life. And yes, apparently he was blind. And so how does a blind man walk a mile to a wash? Um, that that is I very think. strange. But, okay, he had attempted suicide once, and um, that is very strange how... The taxi driver, too, would just leave him there. But I think we're about at the break now, Larry. So um, I know there's a lot of people uh, listening. Uh, Skyman keeps saying this is suspenseful in the chat room here. So, uh, Well, I'm I glad to hear that. We've got more when we come back. So uh, stay tuned, folks. We will be back for the second half of the Joiner Report at WPRN FM 105.7 and at UFO Paranormal Radio Network. AOR1.com. I should know I'm Irish. Good evening and welcome to this week's worldwide broadcast of The Joyner Report. Now here's your host, Angela Joyner. Welcome 
Welcome back to the second half of the Joiner Report. Thanks for sticking with us. We're talking with Larry Lowe and his uh, incredible uh, research, and he's doing a good job of delivering the story of James McDonald, an early pioneer of ufology. We've all been on the edge of our seats listening as uh, Larry uh, leads us through his life and and uh, his legacy, really. Larry, uh, thank you for being on with me. Well, thank you very much, Angela. It's good to be back for the, the second part of this. And uh, I am... I am not doing justice to James McDonald's life because uh, he contributed so much, so well that I could wear out two hours just reciting everything that he did, and that 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 would be good for people to remember. But I think there's a cautionary tale in all of this, and what we're really faced with is somebody of profound intellect and indomitable spirit. Uh, who would stop at nothing to uh, see that what he perceived to be the truth were to win out, uh, got involved in the study of, of the UFO phenomenon and ultimately was dead as a result. And at, at what age did he die? How old was he? All well, uh, you're going to ask me a detail I haven't got an answer for. Um, oh, that's I'm okay. going to say he was uh, in his 40s. Okay. Well, uh, you he know, was in his 40s. He had a lot of career left. Um, from the uh, first part of the show, we were talking about his trek into the desert. And the thing that strikes me is, okay, this is how I see it. If if the taxi driver took him to buy a gun, to me, there's only really two things. It's either he intended to take his life, how he walked a mile blind to where he did it, I don't know, or he might have thought he was going to meet someone that was going to give him some more information on what he was into, this thing that Bob Wood thought he had discovered and it was so sensitive he couldn't even tell Bob about it. Uh, if he was going to meet someone, he might have felt he needed uh, some protection. Uh, maybe he didn't really know who this person was. And maybe, uh, of course, it's all conjecture on my part or speculation on my part. I just, uh, that's, that's the way I look at it is uh, he was either going there to kill himself or he was going there to meet someone. What do you think about that? Well, I think from the basis of of just what we've had been able to discuss thus far, that's an interesting uh, conjecture that, yeah, well, what if, what if that was the case? Um, the secret to all of this for an awful lot of people besides me is to read Ann Druffel's book, Firestorm. Uh, it, it's, it's a tremendous history of the time and, and the issues, and when it comes down to the details that lead up to his parents' suicide, um, she's tasteful uh, and yet reasonably explicit. She raises just as many questions as I read you, and not very many more. Uh, and that specter that there was something odd about it floats very, very gently in the background. To read the 
chapter, he had had a, he, he had made one last attempt to reconcile his marriage, which was falling apart. Uh, his lovely wife had filed for divorce on the basis of neglect because he had been running around the countryside doing everything he could do. Uh, and, he, and with one last effort, he went in to talk to her to see if he could put the marriage back together. Uh, that did not work out, and he spent an uncharacteristic hour or two with a colleague at U of A talking solely about his personal problems in that regard. Um, in the day before he did this, um, so it's it's pretty clear that at some level there was an active intent by his mind to go ahead and and commit the act that he apparently committed. The question really is 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 this in his makeup, and could he have been led to the point? where he actually did the work, but it was what something else, something that somebody else uh, wanted to have happen. Uh, and I think I want to start along that line. We're going to back up a little bit. Uh, I have a source that I, I don't have attribution for, and I haven't got a backup on. So this is merely hearsay, but I have been told that it was against James McDonald's personal uh, spiritual beliefs to commit suicide, regardless of how you know desperate things might be. I, I we can't do anything with that because there's no way to co corroborate it. But let's uh, at least listen to um, Bob Wood's analysis of what the tendency would be for suicide, and this is kind of before all this went down. Okay. Do you think he had ever had any any tendency in his life uh, or his character that would condone suicide as a solution to a problem? No, I don't think so. Do you think... It, it took Bob a while to think about that a little bit, but that's what he came up with. Suicide is not something that you would expect from James McDonald. Um, and so now the next question becomes, uh, what processes would it take to lead him to get to that point? And who might have had an interest in, in them getting those processes happening? Uh, to review, for those of you that missed the first hour, James McDonald passionately believed all of his life that there was a foul-up in place, but at, towards the very end came to the conclusion that there was a cover-up in place because he found out something. And I asked Wood how that could have happened, that he could have come into that information. And here's Wood's response. I, I did speculate uh, a little bit as to who, who he was seeing. I, I had the impression between the, the times I've seen him to this time in the airport uh, that he had uh, he had, he had uh, taken advantage of, of his intellectual muscle uh, which permitted him to, to meet important people and he'd gone through probably several connections to, to get at people of, of 
in, in real at a real position to know. And uh, so I, I think he was really working the pol politics to uh, talk to some important people, and, and that's how he got what he got. Um. So McDonald found something out, and this put him in a, a very interesting uh, place. Um, I want to come back to finish that statement up. I want to listen briefly to uh, Wood talk about the fact that McDonald began to realize, uh, not immediately before, but in the in the years, a couple of years prior to his uh, ultimate death, that uh, this was not as safe and clean and a simple world as he had assumed. Well, I guess I I would say there. Um, my impression was that when he started, he, he treated this as a, as a academic subject of interest that was an uh, 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 intellectual challenge, um, but uh, not realizing how, how, how deeply uh, emotional this was um, for other people. And uh, I think he was surprised. There were, there were two two things that uh, I think he encountered that surprised him, and maybe caused him to 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 rethink his willingness to be open. One was the case you just mentioned, where he was surprised by by finding that that people were were trying to, to uh, take advantage of his. Uh, the work to discredit him in UFOs. And the second was when he was uh, traveling at least once and maybe twice, he found that his briefcase had been searched while he was apparently uh, at an air, at a, at, a, uh, at a stop at an airplane. You know, in, in the earlier days, you could leave your briefcase on the, if you were stopping at a, an intermediate stop continuing uh, you could get off go to the lobby you know have a cup of coffee come back and sit down and apparently he did that once he left his briefcase on the airplane and when he came back he found it had been searched and there were papers missing so he, he, he told me about that in some detail and it was clear to me that this was the first time he realized that he was encountering something that was was a way bigger than just the pure intellectual aspects. So that, that So it began to dawn on uh, McDonald that the, the, the forces arrayed against him were not just going to make an intellectual argument uh, or refuse to do their work, but that's, that there was a bigger agenda afoot. Uh, and he did not shirk from speaking as we say he took on the Air Force successfully prevented them from ringing Tucson with nuclear uh, missile silos um, he took on J. Allen Hynek uh, the the beginning of the book Firestorm is worth the reading alone uh, written by Jacques Vallée who was in the room at the time uh, he was there when, when Jim McDonald showed up and basically said to J. Allen Hynek you're not doing your job. Uh, you're sitting on the Blue Book reports. You know that a lot of them 
or some number of them, are good, solid cases that have no explanation that would indicate that something's afoot. And you're not disseminating them. You're not alerting science. You're not talking about them. And you're not doing any research on your own. Uh, and it was a salient moment when this uh, angry young man, and I think characterizing him as an angry young man is really wrong. Uh, McDonald was always very cautious and careful in his thought process. I think in this one instance, uh, he felt free to, to, to call Heineck to task. And apparently, according to the valet, it was all Heineck could do to keep puffing on his cigar or his pipe and, and erupting up uh, in self-defense, saying, I haven't got any choice. This is how the world works. You're, you're, not, you're not aware of that. So we've got a guy who's committed to the truth. We've got a guy who thought that everything was probably a foul-up, who suddenly changed his mind, who for some reason somehow has become aware of something, perhaps a bit of wreckage, uh, a, a crash retrieval, an awareness of MJM, uh, MJ-12, or whatever the equivalent is. And he is likely about to go do something to make the world aware of this. Uh, and at that moment in time, I make the characterization. Now, oh, and, and of all things, he's a degreed, highly respected academic, Ph.D., atmospheric scientist who has applied nothing but scientific and academic rigor to the question. So he's, he's irreproachable on so many levels that he is the most dangerous threat to the continued secrecy. And before I go any further, I want to vet that, that thought process with our, our two sub-guests. First, uh, we'll ask Dr. Wood what he thinks, and then Stanton Friedman. I am prepared to make the statement that James E. McDonald was the strongest threat to the continued denial and secrecy surrounding the UF issue to emerge from academic science. Would you respond to that, characterize that as uh, valid or invalid or excessive? Or I would characterize that as superbly accurate. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't make a better statement than that. Okay. I, there was nobody, nobody with the competence and determination than I've ever met uh, who, who would have gone that far. So, I mean, he was, uh, he, was, he was absolutely superb at what he was trying to do. So he was... And now Stanton Friedman. I would consider that a reasonable characterization by far. He, he made more noise with more facts in hand. He was the strongest... Uh, debunker of the debunkers, if I put it that way, uh, who could take on class and mental and was willing to do that from a scientific and engineering point of view. And so, yeah, if he would were to continue, his influence on academia would have been very great. Uh, not only did he have the credentials, but he had you know, which is only part of the story. But he had the practical experience of being able to cite case after case. Uh, and it's the way he uh, sorted out his congressional testimony. He looked at like six objections to UFO reality and gave examples and blasted each of them. How come they're never seen over big cities? He gives you half a dozen big city cases. 
how come they're never seen on radar? Gives you half a dozen radar cases. Why don't astronomers ever see them? Gives you half a dozen of those. So systematic, careful, well-investigated. I never heard him say anything that wasn't based on a, a real good look at the case in hand. And so, yes, he did represent the strongest threat. Now, that may have contributed indirectly. I'm not saying the government took him out. I was satisfied from talking to his daughter that he made the plans. He did it. And it's easy to get guns in Tucson. I don't need to tell you that, I don't think, mm-hmm. uh, especially back then. But uh, th- there's no question that he was having a big influence. And he could talk at places where other people couldn't and be listened to, his credentials, his status, and so forth, and his in-depth pursuit of truth made him, uh, yeah, a real threat to the government's cover-up plans. Uh, So that is a situation, um, say, a year or so before his death. Uh, there was nobody more poised than he was, nobody that would do more with the information, and apparently he got a hold of something. I tend to agree with Stanton, and I think it, it's pretty well documented in, in Ann's book, that whatever James McDonald did, he more or less did it personally, although you'd love to be able to investigate who these two people were that handled all the information, who apparently discovered him, uh, who didn't notify the police, uh, and took it upon themselves to make sure everything was the way it wants to be before um, he was discovered. Wait, that's but something I don't, just I, don't, at, I don't really understand that, Larry. Let's wait a second. Okay, there were two people okay. that okay. were friends of his, right? These two people, they were not identified, but they took it on themselves. For some reason, they figured out he was he was not missing, and for some reason, they figured out he was in the desert. How did that all come about? All and they I can do. To the police. I don't really all, understand it. All, all I can do, and all any of us can do for the moment, is read Ann's book. It would be worth seriously trying to track the rest of this down. Um, Theoretically, he might have been found in the desert the same day if he disappeared, if the police had been called immediately. The team was never contacted. Instead, two friends of the family, a man and a woman, who had been called by the family during the initial search, advised the family that they would find him, implying that they knew how to do it that they knew where he was, that they could go and get him. The woman, who presented herself only as Dr. Martin, found out where the taxi driver had left him in the desert and numerous calls from an isolated house within a mile of Canyon del Oro, which is where he was found. Now, why did two friends insist upon looking for him instead of calling in the experts? Why wasn't the, the Tucson search and rescue team called or the police notified or anything else? This remains unclear, and the two, the quote unquote, two friends remain unidentified. And for a fact to not 
not go unidentified in an Ann Druffel book uh, is itself really remarkable. Something about what actually went on out there in the desert, we don't know. And I don't and, know how we can. Uh, that is that. really strange. So, did Ann look at the police reports and look at the medical examiner's report? Because, I, first of all, just answer that. Do you know if she did? Is that, that in the book? I am certain of it because uh, the accounts in the newspapers and various things are in the appendix. She printed, mm -hmm. uh, uh, let's see, a note here in appendix 18E is the report from the newspaper, his application for sabbatical leave just prior to leaving, his last known scientific paper. Um, I would assume that she would, but in the spirit of the man we're talking about, I'd have to tell you that I don't know for sure. So I'm not going to add any confabulation to an already mysterious situation. I wonder what the terrain was like in that desert, because I would think um, his body would have shown uh, marks from falling down or, or running into the vegetation, getting scratched up. You know, that, that sort of thing. If he really was walking a mile, that would be, a, you know, a blind man walking a mile. That would be incredible. You know, maybe he wasn't totally blind. Maybe he uh, could see some light and shadows like some people can that are declared legally blind. But that is just very bizarre to me. And this Dr. Martin locates the taxi driver. Well... Tucson, even then, wasn't a real small town. Yeah, that wasn't a real small town. So um, he, the taxi driver takes him out there on Saturday. The Dr. Martin, whoever she was, locates the taxi driver and proceeds to go and oh, look for him and finds him a mile away from the ta where the taxi driver said he left him. I mean, how does she even know? I guess maybe there were footprints or something leading off. I don't know. But how would you know which direction to go? I mean, and find him that quickly. I, I'd, lo I'd love to find Mrs. Martin and ask her that very question. This is why I love coming on your show, because you're an investigative journalist, and as soon as you smell a mystery, you start asking all the right questions. Well, it's... Uh it just seems like common sense to me, but that is um, very compelling to me that um, why weren't these two friends identified? Why aren't their names in the police report? They should be. Strange. Well, maybe it's time for somebody to open up an investigation and go take a look. Perhaps if some uh, producer out there wants to fund a little effort, we could go look into all this and see what <laughs> we can find out. It would be the well, ultimate cold case. Well, definitely another uh, medical examiner should go over that report and uh, and see, you know, if they see any discrepancies there. I mean, I do think it would be worth looking into. I sure do. I, I'd like to be the one that did it, but it's uh, it's just really compelling now. And he takes a gun. Right. What? What about what Stanton said? Stanton said he talked to his daughter. Uh, to, to right. McDonald's daughter, and he was convinced that it was a suicide that he did it himself, right? I think what Stanton said was, I'm convinced that he did it. 
In other words, that he did plan the act and and did execute it. Okay. Presumably on his own. How he got the mile from the cab to the canyon without stumbling over rocks if he was in fact blind uh, and what the role of these two mysterious people is, is is not at all clear. Stanton was very careful, as was Bob Wood, as is Ann Druffle. Very, very careful to uh, couch their remarks um, in, a, in a gentle fashion because um, it's a slippery slope. Uh, what I'd like to e- examine is let's let's go back a little bit and say, okay, if if you're the military industrial complex, the secret keepers, the people that know that there's enormous amounts of money at stake. I mean, remember, James McDonald testified in front of Congress that it would not be a really good idea to drive the Boeing SST design at 60,000 feet at Mach 2 for a very long period of time because the um, atmosphere up there is very still and very fragile. Uh, and he made a he he was um, among a number of people who made the case that should not do this. They had already put I think eight billion dollars into research to try to come up with one. Uh, Europe was already working on one, and America needed to remain at the top of the aerospace uh, pyramid. If you going supersonic was the big deal, we ultimately didn't. And a lot of people took a lot of hits. That's a lot of jobs. That's a lot of technology. You can't apply that supersonic. Uh, I mean, the SST of the time is essentially what the B-1 is today, a uh, gigantic airplane that can go uh, beyond the Mach and deliver something somewhere. In, in the B-1's case, it's a bomb. And in those days, it was going to be passengers. Um, so the military industrial complex has got a vested interest in having this guy not talk about stuff. How do you contrive for that to happen? And I'm just going to paint a hypothetical here. I'm going to leave a little innuendo on the table. I'm going to let some of the listeners kind of add two and two for themselves and see where we get. But first of all, let's hear about some of the efforts that were that happened that made James McDonald a despondent man. And the most key one was that when he took his atmospheric physics expertise up against Congress, he expected a straight answer and a respectful reception. And what he got was ridicule. Let's listen to Bob Friedman. Stan Friedman. A couple of people had said who met with I didn't meet with him every time he was in town. But uh, the hearings at Congress where the guy from Washington State, uh, the, the hearings were about the SST, the supersonic transport. And Jim was a was against it because of the effect all that exhaust would have on the um, ozone layer. And, you know, his business was upper atmosphere, atmospheric physics. He was an expert at that. But this was politics, and the, one of the guys who was on the congressional committee looking at this, when Jim was introduced, oh, you're the guy who believes in little green men or something to that effect. It was a nasty crack, and it had no it wasn't said in humor. You understand, trying to put down Jim's testimony, uh, and that was a little hard to take. And then, as I understand it, the immediately precipitating event. I mean, he'd had ups and downs. We knew that, but uh, 
was when his wife told him that there was another man. I mean, he, he was caught totally by surprise. And there, in, behind the scenes, there was class going to the Navy and trying to get his funding taken away. Uh, you know, there's class in Washington, a great place to, uh, what's the word I want, um, lobby against McDonald. And he was a nasty son of a bitch. <laughs> uh, and now let's listen to uh, Bob Wood's uh, account of the same period of time. Is it possible that since between the time that you met him in the airport and the time he began to take these attempts on his life, that he discovered, in fact, that what he had found out was something that that was monumental enough to present some kind of conundrum that left him in a despair, saying, I can't reveal this. Whatever this is is so dangerous, and, and somehow that he naturally would have fallen into a, a depressive state. Oh, that's that's a good question. But there are there are people, of course, who claim to have been uh, had claim to have had uh, such secrets revealed to them that they absolutely feel they can't tell anybody. Uh, I, I personally have difficulty with that, and I I think Jim would have too. I mean, you know. He, he was a very logical guy, in, in my opinion, and his, this whole subject of, of uh, UFOs and visitors is a very logical subject. I mean, all you have to do is just keep digging away at it, and, and it'll all, all turn out to be discussable and understandable. But that includes things that we don't understand now, such as the psychic phenomena. I, I believe it is totally possible for... Um, psychic communication to be extremely powerful and compelling. I mean, I have, I have no reservations that uh, the right level of uh, psychic knowledge could, could have caused him to, uh, to, to attempt to commit suicide. Yeah. So, but on the other hand, the, the evidence for that, as far as I know, is, is zero. Well, it kind of... And, and that is, of course, um, Bob Wood being very careful and thoughtful of the end. The evidence that anything uh, unusual uh, or subtle uh, is zero. And consequently, everything that I'm about to say uh, is speculation here. But it's it's an interesting speculation to consider. Um. I just want to read a little bit from uh, Ann Druffel's book. She talks about uh, a couple of hypotheses as to what actually drove him to do this. Um, there is a third alternate hypothesis, however, which combines factors from the three others which would, under certain circumstances, be logical. Confirmed facts surfaced through the mid-1970s that through congressional hearings and the Freedom of Information Act about experiments which were conducted by government intelligence agencies in the 1950s and 60s. It is an established fact that human behavior can be influenced through the use of chemicals, microwaves, long-range hypnosis, and several other techniques 
which can work from a distance. These techniques can cause depression, violent behavior, and other detrimental alterations of normal conduct. These effects can be brought about without the subject's knowledge. Wow. So he could have been influenced by some kind of microwaves or drugs or something. But my personal opinion is that's a stretch because he did have a lot going on. He, his funding, somebody's trying to rip his funding out from under him. His wife has a lover. Uh, he's been ridiculed at, at Congress and by his peers. And he he found out something that really bothered him. Exactly. And I think if you take all of those elements and put them together, you may begin to realize that here's, here's a situation that was concocted to some degree. Now, we all know that human relationships are inexplicable and unmanageable, but let's just read this last paragraph here. Giving credence to the third hypothesis is a fact that McDonald, during the course of his six-year UFO research, was repeatedly cajoled, disappointed, blocked, ridiculed, and finally emotionally devastated. All of these events are described in this book, but it is not illogical to speculate that some of them were orchestrated attacks. Add to these the fact that Betsy's young man, four months after McDonald's death, admitted that, that both he and his father were of Stalinistic, communistic persuasion, Shocked and betrayed, Betsy broke the relationship off immediately. So the young man that had ingratiated himself to Betsy McDonald and given her the attention uh, and confirmed the beliefs that she wanted to hear, conveniently a couple of months after McDonald's death, after he realized that he could not reconcile, announced a set of belief systems that so shocked and amazed Betsy that she just said, that's it, not another word, we're done. So what was this young man's motive in all of this? Was he, in a way, just trying to apply some more pressure to James McDonald? Because certainly the fact that his marriage was breaking up is commonly referred to as the last straw. It was something that he believed in and depended upon, as near as I can tell. And he was a devoted family man, uh, to the extent that his uh, schedule would allow. Okay, so there, you know, there's a speculation there that this uh, man, lover, boyfriend to Betsy was placed with her to well, cause more pressure. Only going, only going, only going through the motions to help pull her farther away. Uh, and it, it, it seems like it could have been done. Now, I'm not saying it was done, but um, we've heard uh, Bob Wood say that he did not believe that suicide was anything that James McDonald would do on a normal day. Let's listen to Stanton Friedman. One cannot help but wonder if some sort of covert means was used to drive him to a state of despair or compel him to do something he might not normally have done, which would affect the removal of the threat. Yeah. Uh, look, that wouldn't surprise me at all. What, what you say makes sense, and 
there are subtle ways of dealing with people, and certainly the government was looking into subtlety, the whole business about microwaves and the Russians exposing uh, certain American facilities uh, in Moscow to microwaves mm -hmm. and so forth. Uh, the American Embassy, I believe, was... Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so uh, I, you know, it's easy to say, oh, that's just a conspiracy theater. Hey, we're talking about big stakes, big game here. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me at all if Jim was a victim at some level of uh, distressing things, things that would cause him distress and that would lead to him being much more vulnerable to any suicidal tendency he might have had. You know, it's like businesses. If you're caught... I have to mention in passing that the audio selections that I've made are, end, are ending a little bit later than I wanted them to, so I've got to watch carefully. And now let's listen to Bob Wood talk about whether or not the people who keep the secrets had the motive and perhaps the means to silence Jim McDonald. Okay. Do you think that, that there was a potential or a motive for security apparatus to do something that would cause him either to commit suicide or give the appearance of having committed suicide. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I think those people would have had the, the motive to uh, to take him out of the picture. And, um, and probably the means. And now we'll go back one more time to Stanton Friedman. It wouldn't surprise me at all if there were psychiatrists who would have evaluated Jim uh, from what they could hear at various places. He was a very, you know, he gave a lot of public talks. He met a lot of people. He was not hiding behind a barrier of uh, academia. He went out. He was in the real world. Uh, and so there would have been plenty of material for whether it's MG12 or anybody else to say, what are we going to do about this guy? Well, uh, let's do a psychological profile and let's see what we can come up with. There may be ways to uh, influence him without his knowing it, without us being caught, and uh, to downgrade the threat. That, that wouldn't surprise me at all, frankly. Uh, you know, it, it, I know it sounds like conspiracy theory, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but in the real world in which we live, uh, strong measures have been taken often against various and sundry people who were getting in the way. Uh, and that is the most compelling point to remember. Um, strong measures have been taken if you get in the way. Uh, an example comes to mind, uh, name escapes me, but somebody will recognize it. Maybe your chat room people will know. Um, British uh, defense consultant, uh, very adamant that the justification for England getting involved in the Iraq war was falsified and went so far as to say so, and there was a big uh, ha about whether or not uh, he was right and then one day he was found in a park with his wrist slit apparently 
a suicide. And how many times has that uh, gone by, gone down? Uh, I don't know. I don't know that we can know. It would take a tremendous investigative effort to find out. I'd love to find out. But what's really important here, I think, is that the legacy that James McDonald left us, uh, not so much the records and not so much the enormous audio files uh, that have carefully compiled um, by some members of uh, MUFON LA and, are, and would be available as soon as the University of Arizona releases the rights to them. What's, what the legacy for us is the example that he set. Because he spoke what he thought was truth and he would not stand for what he, didn't, he thought was falsehood. And he only spoke when he had facts to back himself up. And he made logical, sensible arguments, and he said there's something here. It's the, the least unlikely conjecture is that whatever's inside the UFOs is not from around here. And that is the open-minded stance that science should take. And if more people today followed that and followed his rigorous documentation and writing, I think the field would be far, far better off. And so if we can do anything about James McDonald's death, then everybody needs to stop and maybe read the book and back up and think about how to be more careful uh, and more cautious and more accurate in the reporting. I agree with that. Amen. And I'll, I'll leave this portion of the program with the final word to Stanton Friedman, whose closing remark, I think, says it all. Jim had a great influence on all of us and on the AIAA, the congressional hearings. Uh, it's just a damn shame he died when he did. Uh, yeah, well... And that concludes our story, ladies and gentlemen. And it is an amazing story. I just, um, I just think in this day and time, with forensics being what it is, um, or maybe I'm like some others. I watch CSI too much, <laughs> but they can determine, you know, if it's suicide from the angle of the gun, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, maybe um, this will spawn some interest to find out what really happened to. James McDonald, Larry. You never know. Well, if we if it did and it does, and we find out, then we'll recognize the extent to which the government might go to to silence people. And I would put another cautionary tale on the other end of it. Let's assume for a moment that there is no government complicity. Let's assume simply that the process of being a ufologist and committed to trying to get the truth out. Uh, took a toll on his personal life. Uh, the fact that he made enemies uh, who ultimately his funding was removed, his career was in shambles, his marriage fell apart. Uh, if you leave out government involvement, you still have a man dead in the desert that ought to be alive. 
uh, who, whose only crime, if you want to think of it that way, was to try and do a good job and be a responsible scientist. That's a cautionary tale in its own right. I agree. Listen, we've got a question in the chat room. Um, uh, I don't remember who asked it originally, sorry. But uh, they want to know where is the gun that uh, led to his death? Is it still in uh, police hands? Do you know? I do not know. Okay. And I love it that somebody's asking that kind of question. Where are the photographs that were taken at the crime scene? if it was a crime scene. What is the investigative record by the police department? What was the coroner's opinion? Right. Who was the cab driver? What was his background? I don't know. I didn't um, show up answers. All I showed up with a spotlight to go. Yeah, it's a, it's an, an incredible story. Now, um, Spinning Shields in the chat room wants to know if you think John Mack's death was really an accident. You know, he died in London. Well, uh, the only answer is that I can give at the moment is that I don't know. Uh, I think I've talked to a couple of people in the field. Uh, and Mack is an easy... Uh, conclusion to jump to because he was again too prominent too sensible uh, took on Harvard uh, died before his time and though the information that I get as far as I've looked into it was that yes it was just uh, an accident but I'm not satisfied because I don't know okay and we have about uh, two minutes uh before the before we've got to end the show, and I've really enjoyed this uh, tonight. I, it's really making me think. I still have so many more questions, but um, listen, we're getting close to Christmas. What's on your Christmas wish list? Well, there's two two quick answers to that, and that is if you're shopping for somebody. Uh, who uses their right brain, who's artistic, who's creative, who's thoughtful, uh, you can do no worse. You, you cannot do any better than to get your hands on a copy of The Art of Close Encounters by Kim Carlsberg. I've seen the book. I've got one of five of them that's in the country. Tomorrow at MUFON Phoenix, I'm going to give a version of this talk. We're going to come into some more information and I'm going to present a copy of The Art of Close Encounters to the MUFON Chapter Library. It's richly illustrated. Um, it's, it provides us the first visual taxonomy of the different alien types that are around. And it's a remarkable effort by an incredibly dedicated person. If you're talking for somebody who's got a left brain, thinks logically, then you can do no worse or you could not do any better than to get a copy of Leslie Keene's book, uh, UFOs, which I'm sure everyone is somewhat aware of now. But the two works are very complementary depending upon the frame of mind of your uh, uh, your person. Thank you, Angela. All right. Those are good suggestions. Um, I'm hoping to get that uh, Kim Carlson book also. So that's it for me tonight. Thank you so much, Larry, for coming on with me and we will see you next week next friday night 
Same time, same channel. Good night, everyone.